This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, when things look dark, it's good to be reminded of what's possible. And that's exactly what D.D. Guttenplan does in his new book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. But first, should the Democrats impeach our new Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh in January? Trump Watch starts right now. The Democrats are likely to win majority control of the House of Representatives on November 6th. What can they do about Brett Kavanaugh then? Should they do anything? For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent and author most recently of the book Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, when the new Congress convenes in January, the House Judiciary Committee will be chaired by Democrat Jerry Nadler. He says he wants to open an investigation into Brett Kavanaugh and what happened and what didn't happen at his confirmation hearings. What do you think they should focus on? You correctly say that Nadler's interested in this. I think if the word wants to do it is, is perhaps the inappropriate term, at least as you look at how Nadler talks about it. He feels he has a duty to do it. And that's very important because there will be pushback. There will be some Democrats who, you know, in the sort of classic model, want to put everything behind and supposedly look forward. But what Nadler has said is that the Senate failed to do its job. It didn't exercise the the baseline responsibilities in a system of separated powers where you have checks and balances, you cannot give advice and consent without adequate information. And you cannot give advice and consent unless you have explored the most serious issues that have arisen. And so what Nadler and others are talking about is looking at a variety of issues that the Senate simply did not examine. Some of those will very possibly relate to the testimony of uh, Dr. Ford as regards Brett Kavanaugh. That is, a, that is a possibility because there was so much there that was unexamined. But there's also something else which could become central to this. And frankly, if they do go forward, should be central to it. And that is the documented evidence you know, that's, that's really overwhelming at this point that Brett Kavanaugh repeatedly lied to the Senate Judiciary Committee, starting back during the George W. Bush presidency. You're really talking about 15 years of lying under oath and of participating in schemes to undermine the authority and the functionality of the Senate as a body that examines nominations for judicial posts and ultimately confirms or rejects them. It is something that the Senate Judiciary Committee should have examined and in fact should still be examining, but Chuck Grassley has refused to do so. And so Jerry Nadler, I think is is really essentially saying he is willing to follow his oath 
as a member of Congress and as the chair of a key committee, should he become the chair of judiciary after the election. You talked about the Democrats who say this is a bad idea. Their main argument is that impeachment, if the, if the House Judiciary Committee were to pass articles of impeachment against Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, would then go to the Senate for a trial, and the standard there is the same as impeaching the president, a two-thirds vote to convict the Democrats will not control two-thirds of the Senate, so they will not win a vote to impeach Brett Kavanaugh. And therefore, some argue, there's no point. What's the point of doing something you're going to lose? Do you think there's a point of bringing articles of impeachment against Brett Kavanaugh if they're going to lose a trial vote in the Senate? Ask Richard Nixon if articles of impeachment in the House matter. Great answer. Impeachment should not be a political calculation. Impeachment should be an act of duty under the Constitution of the United States. If you feel that someone has in their official capacity, whether that be in their current capacity or previous, taken actions that are at odds with the Constitution, at odds with the good of the Republic, you act, you investigate, And if that investigation leads to at least some sense of confirmation of the high crimes or misdemeanors, that very broad definition given by the founders, then you you impeach. You, You vote for articles of impeachment. They come out of the Judiciary Committee generally and then are taken up by the whole of the House of Representatives. And, you know, if you sit there and you say, oh, well, we can't do this because you know, Chuck Grassley won't like it, or Lindsey Graham will throw a fit. That isn't really the way the founders intended for it to work. If the articles are sufficiently damning and are sufficiently well-documented, the trial in the Senate will become, you know, would become a big deal. And you, at that point, might see some folks step up and do the right thing. It's not guaranteed, of course. I know the hyper-partisanship of the moment, but I will remind you that lying under oath to the, to the Senate, to the Judiciary Committee, is something that federal judges have been impeached for. You know, the final analysis of this, I have long believed that the power of impeachment, which I wrote a book about, is, is much greater than simply the process. It is not simply this, you know, well, House does this, Senate does that. Then you have these different votes. It's also just the the literal act of faith in the Constitution. This sense that you know it's it says we're supposed to act, we will act. If the other chamber fails to act, that is their failure. History will look on them in a, in a very bad way. But you don't not do it because of a political calculus. And I'm really not a big fan of the hyper-caution of Democrats as regards accountability issues. The fact of the matter is that there are times when it is a duty and a necessity to hold someone to account. And if it is true, as Russ Feingold, the former member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, says, that Brett Kavanaugh has never appeared before the committee without lying. If it is true, as Patrick Leahy, the senior member of the United States Senate, the senior member of the Judiciary Committee says that there is clear and and undebatable evidence that 
Brett Kavanaugh intentionally set out to mislead the committee. If what a group of former top aides on the committee say that it is clear that Brett Kavanaugh dealt in stolen materials uh, in order to undermine and manipulate the confirmation process or judges when he was working for George W. Bush and with Karl Rove, then those are impeachable offenses. And, and you shouldn't run away from it. You should focus on it because it might just possibly be a way to tell the American people that you take the system of checks and balances a little more seriously than does Mitch McConnell. There's a couple of other uh, possibilities the House Judiciary Committee could take up under Democratic control that come out of the experience of the Senate uh, confirmation process with Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, One thing that's being talked about, I wonder what you think about setting term limits for Supreme Court justices and all federal judges. The, The rationale for making these lifetime appointments was to insulate them from politics, but, you know, that's been finished for many decades now. Um, I think that might have been finished sometime around 1789. (laughs) And the other proposal is to expand the Supreme Court. There's nothing in the Constitution that says it's limited to nine justices. There could be 11. An act of Congress could expand the Supreme Court, and the argument would be there's just too much work for nine people. Uh, You know, our population has gotten bigger. Our legal system has gotten more complex. So what do you think about term limits for justices and judges and expanding the Supreme Court to 11 justices? Well, the question you ask is rooted um, in history. And the progressives of a century ago, Teddy Roosevelt, Robert M. LaFollette, and others, believe very, very strongly that uh, the Supreme Court of the United States was a reactionary barrier to progress. And so they proposed many things you're talking about, this idea of term limits for justices and for federal judges as well, maybe a 20-year limit, something like that, uh, where you couldn't be reappointed, so you don't have, you're not going to curry the favor of the president and put you there, but a 20-year service is still a, a significantly long enough time that you're somewhat insulated from politics. That seems very logical. It seems like a, a, a very appropriate way to do things. And, and it, it does address one of the problems of the court, no matter who's on it, and that is that someone can be appointed to the, the Supreme Court uh, at a point where cell phones don't exist and most people don't use computers and still be serving there at a point where, you know, we're automating the whole of society, i.e. that you you end up with a situation with people serving 30, 40, you know, some years or even longer, and they they are literally out of touch with, you know, some fundamental shifts that are taking place in society. So it's not merely about, you know, we like this guy or we don't like this guy. There's a pretty good practical argument for it. There's one other argument for it, too, that I would put in play, and obviously I'm sympathetic to these ideas. Um, The other argument that I would put in play is this. Every other branch or every other, you know, kind of major function of the federal government has been updated over time. Uh, In the executive branch, when you – the initial idea was that when you had an election, the person who got the most votes became president. The person who got the second most votes became vice president. 
They decided to change that when the vice president shot the former secretary of the treasury. And there was just some assumption that maybe you needed a better way of picking vice presidents. Similarly, when the country was founded, the Senate was set up in a way that uh, it would be, you know, filled with folks chosen in backroom deals uh, in state legislatures, not by election. A hundred years ago, 105 years ago, we changed that to have an elected U.S. Senate. Uh, similarly, we've changed, you know, presidential succession. We've changed when Congress goes into session. We've changed even when the president and is sworn in, you know, whether it be March versus January. So we've made all kinds of changes over time with a recognition of the value of updating that, that this system, the system that has separated powers and does have checks and balances. We have not modernized the Supreme Court. And so I think there's an extremely good argument for looking at a host of possible reforms and one of them is, of course, term limits. Another one, frankly, is the idea proposed back in 100 years ago of the possibility of recalling justices, literally a, a national petition. And if you get a particular right number of, Senate, of votes or of signatures on the petition, you then have a national referendum on whether that person should stay in that position or you force a congressional inquiry or you do something. Um, that's a little bit of check and balance that gives power to the people rather than just the impeachment process. And then finally, you talk about expanding the court. Franklin Roosevelt proposed this in the 1930s at a time when, again, the court was a barrier to social and economic progress for the country. And, you know, he was shot down in that regard uh, in a very tense moment, you know, really at a time when there was obviously we were in the midst of the Great Depression. We were looking at the possibility of a world war. Um, I think that, that since then there's been a, a fear on the part of, of all sorts of folks with regard to proposals to expand the court. But there's no reason not to do it. It's actually, it's actually a surprisingly uh, appealing idea, I think, for most folks. Because I, I'll tell you why. It, it breaks us out of this terrible habit or terrible, you know, way of thinking that suggests that Supreme Court justices are somehow high priests, you know, that there can only be, it's all regulated. It's all, there can only be a certain number of them. They, they meet at night, you know, under a certain kind of moonlight or something like that. No, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is human beings. And as we've learned from the Brett Kavanaugh process, I think very flawed human beings, and it's entirely appropriate to look at ways that you might, you know, expand the court, put some limits on, on the time of service, allow for greater accountability, look for whatever way you can to prevent this Supreme Court from being a burden or a harm to society. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like the reform ideas. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. It's the same old story. 
This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Two weeks ago, we spent many hours watching a lot of powerful old white men, Republican senators who voted to confirm a Supreme Court nominee who lied under oath and who also shouted and sneered and cried during his confirmation hearing. But there are other people in politics in the United States, people who didn't go to elite private schools, whose families didn't belong to country clubs, people who didn't get into Yale, and people whose politics are different from Brett Kavanaugh's. Some of them are featured in a new book on the rise of a new radical majority. The author is D.D. Guttenplan. He was the nation's lead reporter during the 2016 election. He traveled all over the country. We spoke with him many times on this podcast about places he'd been from Mississippi to Montana. He's the author of several books. The new one is titled The Next Republic. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Great to be here, John. Well, of all the people you wrote about, who do you think provides the sharpest contrast, the most illuminating alternative to Lindsey Graham and Chuck Grassley and Orrin Hatch? Well, there are two people who come to mind immediately, and you'll, you'll see why two of them come to mind. The, f- the first one is Chukwe Antar Lumumba, who's the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, and who therefore, as an African-American Southerner, couldn't be more different <laughs> from Lindsey Graham. Yes. And not just because he looks different, but because his whole life has been based on adherence to political principle and to struggle. He's the son of the former mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, who was himself a longtime black nationalist lawyer who works for Tupac Shakur and many other you know, African-American artists and activists who faced long prison sentences. And that's the, that's the household that uh, Antar, as everybody calls him, that's his middle name, grew up in. And so he, he has put forward a politics in Jackson that's about empowerment, it's about black power, but it's about black power not as a separatist cause, but as a part of a larger struggle. And I thought that was really important. So that, that was one answer, and that came immediately to mind. But in some ways, the, the anti-those people, and also the anti-Brett Kavanaugh, is the person who's the subject of the last chapter in the book, and that's Zephyr Teachout. Partly because she, she like Antar Lumumba, is a lawyer, and also, like him and unlike them, has devoted her life and her legal career to helping people who, who the odds are stacked against. But also because her whole politics is about a critique of the corporate power that underlies and underlines and underwrites their politics. And, of course, because she's always been a very visible, active, vocal woman in politics. So if I had to put together an ideal team to take on the three of them in any form you like, I would put those two on my side. I opened by talking about the horrible old white men we saw on the Republican side of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Of course, there's another old white man in American politics, a Democratic socialist who ran for president two years ago. Bernie was his name. And for decades, us older leftists had been told just how far outside the mainstream we and people like Bernie were. And then 2016 came along. I certainly wasn't prepared for what happened in the Democratic primaries. Uh, Were you? No, I don't think anybody was prepared. I mean, I talk about it in the beginning of the book, this moment which for me happened in the gym in uh, New Hampshire, on the night of the New Hampshire primary, which, of course, Bernie won. 
I set out not to cover the race as a horse race because, uh, as I told Katrina Vandenhuvel, my editor at the Nation, I thought it was going to be a boring campaign, and I was completely wrong about that. <laughs> yes, uh, but I did also say that I thought that it would be worth sending somebody to pay attention to the people and the movements and what people were talking about outside the sort of cable news channels. And that was that was really my assignment, and it turned out that that's where the that's where the campaign ended up moving to anyway. But in this gym in in New Hampshire, I I wasn't there mainly to cover Bernie, although I, I vote in Vermont, so I've been voting for Bernie for a long time. I was there to see what Bernie's people and who Bernie's people were, and it was for me a kind of moment of astonishment because I I looked around the gym. And there were so many of us. Now, it's true that it was a Bernie Sanders rally, and it was in New Hampshire. So it was whiter than what you would consider most progressive crowds to be. But given that, it was incredibly diverse. You had men in union jackets. You had grandmothers in tie-dyed T-shirts. You had young people in you know their school uh their school sports team shirts you had people of all ages in bernie t-shirts and we were all looking at each other like wow i thought i was the only one mm. the media has been telling us for so long that we're marginal and i mean since the fall of the berlin wall they don't even bother to call us communists anymore <laughs> but you know the the idea that in a country where liberal is a dirty word or a term of opprobrium that nobody will own up to, to say that you're actually not a liberal because you're further to the left than liberals, you felt ready to become a pariah. And instead, it turns out that we were where politics was going. And that was a revelation to me. And in a way, the book flows out of that revelation. It was, it was to say, well, what if these politics were really taken seriously? You know, leaving aside the question of Bernie himself, what if the things that that underpin his vision that education and health care and a place to live are, are human rights and should be guaranteed for everyone. What if those things were taken seriously? What would that mean to our politics? How could we get there? And where does that kind of majoritarian or left populist, however you want to describe it, where does that politics come from in our history? Because I, I discovered pretty quickly that it wasn't something completely new. It was something rather that had been repressed and suppressed, and that was breaking out. And I wanted to look at both where it was breaking out and where it had been before. You open your new book, The Next Republic, with a chapter on winning under conditions of extreme adversity. A great topic and certainly an urgent one for us right now. Tell us about that. So the book is um, six chapters that are portraits of activists whom ideally most of your listeners wouldn't have heard very much about. So it's not a port- they're not portraits of Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or people like that. They're portraits of people who I think are doing not just interesting but essential work, but who, who aren't yet, yet so well-known. And, so, and also who represent one piece or another of what I consider to be this majority, emerging majority coalition. And the first chapter, and it definitely has to be the first chapter, is about Jane McAlevey, who's a union organizer and labor activist and author. And Jane is an incredibly compelling figure for lots of reasons, but I suppose the main one is because she has absolutely no tolerance for bullshit. So I I begin the chapter by talking about a conversation I had with her at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, where 
I was waxing on about how we were going to have to push Hillary Clinton to the left in the in the incoming Clinton administration that at that point we all assumed we were about to have. And she just interrupted me and said she hasn't closed the deal. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, oh, I've been working organizing nurses in hospitals. So I've been talking to women about politics for weeks. And the women I've been talking to, a lot of them are the kind of suburban women whom Hillary is clearly banking on to carry her to victory. And she hasn't closed the deal with them. And I was like, well, what do you mean? How could that be? And so she laid out to me what she thought was happening, which turned out to be absolutely right. And also her own work, which was the work of organizing from the ground up in conditions of extreme adversity, union campaigns in sometimes in, in right-to-work states, and winning again and again and again. In Nevada, she put together this hospital workers' union that won incredible contracts, and that Nevada's a right-to-work state. So we look around and we see Trump and Pence and Kavanaugh, and even without Kavanaugh, we, you know, we, see, we see Gorsuch and we think it's just hopeless. And yet Jane is somebody who goes into situations again and again and again that you and I might consider hopeless, and she just goes in and gets it done. And not only that, she's very methodical about how she gets it done and how to win under those conditions and what you have to do and how you have to listen to people and talk to people and put together a program of action. And I just thought this is exactly what people need to know about. One of the key themes of your book is that even though Trump's victory in 2016 was a horrifying wake-up call, now we should be looking forward rather than backward. What do you think are the most promising directions where we should be looking right now? What did people that you talked to suggest about where to focus our energy and our political work now? Well, I think we have to be looking in lots of different directions at once. I mean, that's the thing. If you have endless money behind you, you can assemble a coalition of the bought and of those in whose interests it is to defend privilege. If you're trying to take that on, then, and that's why the word majority is in the subtitle of the book, you have to put together a majority coalition. Jane said something really important to me. She said, if you give up organizing in, in large numbers, you give up the only weapon that ordinary working people have, which is our, which is our numbers, our preponderance of numbers. Great. So, you know, how do we get to a majority? Well, you have to have labor. That's what that chapter is about. But you also have to have the environmental movement and climate justice. And you have to have racial justice. And you have to have immigrant rights. And all of these fights are actually happening. So the, the, the key is to both attend to these fights that are happening near you, wherever you are, and to see how do they fit together and how do we get the people who are involved in them to be aware of and supportive of each other. I mean, you know, if there's a cardinal virtue for the left, it has to be solidarity. For a historian, the biggest question about our politics over the last 75 years probably is, Whatever happened to the New Deal? What happened to the Roosevelt Republic? In the 30s and 40s, it really changed what Americans thought government could do. I know that's one of the questions you take up in your book, The Next Republic. Well, it's, it's not just one of the questions. It's the reason that the chapter about the Roosevelt Republic is the longest chapter in the book. Okay. And, and part of that is because, you know, if you report presidential campaigns, as I just did, you spend a lot of time in Ohio 
because Ohio is, you know, a battleground state. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed traveling around Ohio was I would see these things that were like, they were like ruins of a, of a alien civilization. I'd be walking down a street in Akron, Ohio, and I'd see this incredible building with beautiful architecture, pillars and pilasters, and I'd walk inside and there'd be murals on the wall, and it was a post office. Or, you know, a public library in Cleveland with these incredible murals of the building of the bridge over the Ohio River. And you think, well, what is it? What is the civilization that built this stuff? And you realize the civilization that built this stuff was the New Deal. And all over America, particularly in the places where we once had, you know, an industrial heartland, you see these relics of the New Deal and the relics of a time when First of all, ordinary people felt the government was on their side and belonged to them. And secondly, when the government felt it was its job to guarantee people basic rights. And so it became an, an obsession with me to figure out, well, what happened to that? How did it, how was it dissolved? And the answer to that is complicated, which is why the chapter is long. But if I had to simplify it, I would say it dissolved in two, in two waves. One was the wave of neoliberal economics, which basically sold everybody on the con that a federal government budget is like your household budget, and therefore that you have to cut spending to equal income at all times under all conditions, uh, which is insane. Uh, and the second was uh, the Red Scare. And what, what effect that had the fact that the Democratic Party and so many labor unions signed up to the Red Scare and purged so many of their most dedicated activists in the 40s and 50s, and that hollowing out of the kind of movement for justice in America, so that it, it basically stayed buried until it was woken in the, in the fight for racial justice, but that was only in the South. You know, you had people who had been red-baited out of unions and suddenly they could come back into politics through civil rights. But that didn't happen in places like Ohio or Western Pennsylvania or West Virginia. The purge, the political purge in those areas stayed permanent. You quote Naomi Klein in your introduction saying, no is not enough. We also need to lay out our yes. What does that mean? Well, that struck me as really important. It really resonated with me because if you, if you look at all the millions of mostly women who came out with their pink hats when Trump was inaugurated, they knew and we know what we're against. You know, we're against Trump and Trumpism. And this, you have this amorphous thing called the resistance. But the resistance isn't going to get us to the next republic. Being against, being in opposition is not going to be enough. We have to say what we're for, not just what we're against. And we have to say what we're for in a way that unites all of these different strands of struggle. When things look dark, it's good to be reminded of what's possible. And that's exactly what D.D. Guttenplan does in his new book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. It's out now from Seven Stories Press. Don, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Take care. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. 
Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.